Sure. Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray, along with the fifth horseman himself. <laughs> <laughs> I was calling you the wizard. I stole it from someone else. But now, after your post last week where you said, do the four horsemen ride, um, I'm calling you the fifth horseman. Mark Rosado. Mark, how's it going? Thanks for coming back on the show. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And I like that. The fifth, the fifth horseman, as I've been watching Lucifer on, uh, on, uh, Netflix, it, it works out well. <laughs> okay. So I had someone send me this note. Um, a couple of them stood out, but I'll just read this one. And, um, let's see, where's it at here? Yeah. It says, so basically you're telling me that we're going to hell in a handbasket. And I said, I'm not, but Mark is. Did, did I, did, did I interpret your, your, your post from last Friday correctly, Mark? <laughs> Well, it, it, it's, it's, you know, we, we're in an interesting world right now. As we've been in this, this downward cycle where inflation has, hasn't been the same type of concern for everybody. I mean, anybody who pays for childcare, health, uh, you know, health insurance, they know that there's been a lot of inflation across, across the, you know, their complex, but food was going in, in one direction, which, which is what it seemed. But that's why I made the comment of if you pick something up and it feels lighter than it did even a year ago, it's like, you're not crazy. Like they've just been taking the unit cost up because they're just putting less stuff that you're buying and keeping the price the same. So when you think about the amount you're buying, you're just, you're, you're paying the same for less. So now as we, as we sit through this next cycle, you know, we have, as, as you said, the fifth horseman, you know, one of those horsemen is, uh, is plague. And when you, and when you look at plague and when you look at, um, uh, the, and then the other key one is, uh, um, you know, drought and famine. And, and just when, when we look at where crops have been, where livestock has been, we've seen avian flu, we've seen swine flu, we've seen locusts going throughout Africa and Southeast Asia. Now we're seeing drought uh, in some areas and massive flooding in others. So when you look at like China, for an example, so everyone, you know, we had so, several shows on the Three Gorges Dam. But the reason why we were doing that is not so much the dam, but the Yangtze River and the Yangtze region, which has a huge amount of farmland, which has a huge amount of livestock that all got washed away. So now we have a situation where, yes, the U.S. corn should have a bumper crop. But then when we look at Brazil, Brazil is way below uh, five-year averages for harvest, for um, for uh, flows on new plantings. And when you look at China buying aggressively around the world and, but yet their, their port stocks are still well below where they should be. So we're looking at this and it's just, there is a shortfall of food with more mouths to feed, which is just driving this food inflation uh, up into obscurity. Yeah. So let's talk about the, those kind of in, in parts there. So you have the longtime readers of the, or listeners, I guess, um, of this platform we had on the communications person i believe from the red cross in uh ethiopia and he talked about you know really for me i'd start following the story pre-covid 2020 because they're having the locusts coming coming down and he's like no no no, it actually goes back to 2019 so yep. some of these problems that you know if you're not tra- if you're tracking them kind of uh, at a distance you might hear a new story here or a new story there you might go okay this is going on some of this stuff has really been apart from covid building up for a long period of time and it, and it sounds like you're saying that the chickens are coming home to roost because um, to your point about the, the about the about the swine you know i know that there was problems in china for at least the last year year and a half with the african swine flu i believe it is and the pigs coming in there and 
I'm not sure which ones they're going to use. And then, of course, they had the Clean Your Plate initiative. So there's been kind of droplets of what you're saying. Um, So all kidding aside, with the Four Horsemen thing, I mean, are we heading for a legit food shortage? Or are we saying, no, 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 but it's going to be things going to be really expensive. Uh, We're going to see, like, maybe um, price gouging, for lack of a better term, to to keep people from overbuying. What do you think is going to happen? Well, it's a great point. And we talk about this in some of our shows where we actually uh, talk about how this has been a building problem since as early as 2015. And when you go through, and then I did a show talking about army worms and the growth of, uh, of locusts. And that was in early 2019, just because when we were looking at, as we went into the, into October of 2019, there was not one, but two locust swarms that were biblical in scale in terms of just sheer size. And that was all throughout um, the, um, the, the southern uh, part of, of Africa. And when we look at the issues at, at large, it's just going to become more expensive. So the problem is, as food gets more expensive, then that means that the food security becomes that much less at the lower end of the scale. So if you look at the U.S., for an example, we now have 43 million people on food stamps. We have uh, food insecurity that went from one in six, uh, one in eight going to, I think it's now one in six, and it could be as high as, you know, three and seven that are just, that just don't have enough food or they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And this is in the United States. So now take that and, and put it in Ethiopia, in Somalia, in all of these, in, in other parts of Southeast Asia. So what is going to happen? You're going to have uh, countries that, that have food and they're going to start putting restrictions. What did Russia do? Russia started increasing taxes on exports because they're going to say like, look, if you're going to export our food, you're going to pay for it. Right. You know, now you have Thailand. Uh, Thailand had, had a, has a, a drought that is limiting rice exports. So you're immediately going to take care of your own, but, and then you're going to look to export the excess. And now the problem is there's going to be less excess going into the market and it's going to cost more. Okay. So by doing that, you have this, this bifurcating market where, you know, the U.S., will we be fine? Sure. Like we'll be fine. You know, we'll, we'll, we we'll have enough food in general and we export the excess. The question is what happens when there's less going around? And China, who has deeper pockets than most being the second largest economy in the world can go out and just buy up as much as they possibly can to, tr- to, to try to subsidize their food at home. So then that leaves behind, other, I mean, even wealthier areas like Egypt, and not to say that Egypt's wealthy, but just in, in comparison, you know, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, you know, places that have to import food, the prices are going to go up. Yeah. So, um, and if I said Ethiopia a minute ago, I meant Kenya just for uh, whoever's listening. I'll link to that in the newsletter. But, um, okay. So there's a couple ways this could go. So obviously, folks, this is a, we're, we're talking here. We're not. Yeah. <laughs> How things could go. We're, we're talking heads. This is what we do. <laughs> you see some of my March texts at night. Like, have you seen this? You know, so this is just, just, just talking. Um, um, sometimes I, I think these conversations, um, we gotta be careful because people think you're almost being inhumane and that's not at all. I think there's a lot of very humane concerns that, that are mm-hmm. out of all this. So, um, let's, let's remove China just temporarily for one second. One of the things that I could see playing out is let's bring COVID back in now. So under under the past twelve months, basically almost we're almost there now, with COVID, um, eleven months, ten months, you have the U.S. news has not really covered, and it, and it doesn't normally do this anyways, but it hasn't really covered what's going on internationally. There has been a lot of civil unrest, and 
part of it's from COVID lockdowns, part of it's from other stuff, part of it's kind of a mix, you know, it's not all COVID, but COVID was kind of the catalyst for people being frustrated. So we're walking into 2021 where people are already frustrated over a lot of stuff. You know, you shut down Nigeria or Kenya or, you know, Zambia, you know, they have like $3 a week to their name, you know, and that's if they work every day and they get paid and things go right. This is not, it's not America, right? Right. So you have this kind of unrest. And then if you have food shortages or increased prices, it's not a stretch to, to think that the map will be reshaped because people are saying, you know what, we're either going to go to pick a country. We're, we're leaving Zambia and we're migrating to Egypt or, or wherever the food is. You know, we're going to do what we have to do or we're going to overthrow our government or we're going to, you know, have a coup or whatever. I mean, and I think there's plenty of unrest apart from the food shortages where you might see this anyways. But if you put the food shortage in there, it could become a very stark reality that we're sitting here in America and the West is sitting here going, Oh my gosh, you know, Africa and South America and Southeast Asia, there's a lot of new countries or new demographic movements. How do you think that plays out on not, not, not specifics, obviously, but just at a high level? Yeah. The, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is like when the economy is booming and I, and I'm talking global economy, when the, when the global economy is booming, you know, things are, Moving in the right direction. So the the one thing that in 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 our show that we did on and on poverty rising, if you looked at food security, food security was getting worse, but pov- like poverty was actually getting better in terms of people were were going above the the number that you use as a dollar ninety of USD a day, and then I think it, it was five seventy dollars a day. And you had that getting better where people were getting more money, where they were getting uh, in a better position. And this speaks to places like Nigeria that you mentioned and other parts of, of Africa and Southeast Asia where, you know, they were earning five, six, seven dollars a day and getting better. So now you had a huge shift in that in terms of just what COVID did to the global economy and it moved dollars out of the market going into these regions. So you look at Nigeria, like Nigeria's had a, a ton of um, uh, recent strikes and riots, and they were food riots. I mean, the, there were there were video of people raiding a government controlled grain uh, uh, grain warehouse, and people were just running around with bags of grain. Like this isn't a malicious thing. This is people who are starving, and they're going out and trying to get food for their family. Because let's be fair, you're going to try to do whatever you can for your loved ones. And that's, that's food, that's water, that's, you know, house, that's housing, that's safety. And when you have the economy contracting, that's when you don't, you just have less to go around and people will, will revert to whatever means necessary to try to feed their family. And that's why, like, one of my favorite quotes on, on war has always been, you know, I don't hate the person in front of me, but I love the people behind me. And that's how you have to look at this, where if I look across a border and I see somebody, you know, fat and happy because they have food and I don't, well, I'm going to go get it. And, and, I, and it's because like, I, I have nothing against those people, but if I can't get it through trade because you're hoarding it or you're doing something, well, that's when all of a sudden you start to see those cross border fights. That's when you start to see, you know, anger and friction and rhetorics uh, picking up. And that's where you're going to start to see some of that where, and, and just get, given my views on the economy in general, I don't see us normalizing very quickly. I don't see the global economy getting much better. And that's why, like everyone likes to say a K-shaped recovery, because if you're in the, in the top quartile, yeah, sure. Like you're doing much better 
your savings grew, your, your costs are down. But if you're in the, and it's really a large part in the bottom shape of that K, you're in pain and, and you're in real pain, especially when you, and that's taking away, you know, Europe and, and America. When you're going to the, the poorer sides of, of the world, I mean, there is real issues that I don't think many in, in the U.S. can really even comprehend what it's like. Yeah, so I'll put my tinfoil hat on for one second here, and I, I won't make you respond to this. I will gladly say that there is no doubt in my mind that the news media does not cover – it doesn't care about stuff internationally by and large, as I said. But there's it, – it hasn't – there's been a lot of stuff that's happening over the last six to 12 months when we've kind of had a down news cycle, if you will, and they've, they've swept it on the rug. And part of that is because if you have to start saying the things that you're saying about, well, people are starving to death, all while acknowledging that the COVID lockdowns internationally, especially in emerging markets, were pushed from the West. You know, they follow our lead. If, they, if you want our money, you better do what we say. Um, it feels like we don't want to talk about what's going on internationally because there's a lot of burden to be, <laughs> to be laid at our feet mm-hmm. for how these countries have responded. Because two things. One, um, you know, when I was in Africa one time, they, they started talking about, you know, the Americans are saying this, the Americans are saying this, and it was really some bad ideas. Like, guys, don't, don't, don't listen to the Americans there. Like, they're, they're wrong. <laughs> they're really wrong. Um, but the other thing is, you know, we control the money, we control the World Bank, we control all this stuff. And so, um, while it's not directly the U.S. or the EU's fault, we do bear some of the burden of what's happening in, the, in these emerging markets because we said if you don't shut down, you're going to die. Well, if you shut down in Kenya, you're going to die of starvation. And so, mm-hmm. kind of, um, so I, I won't. You can I'll, you can respond if you want, but I won't make you respond because I know. Well, I, when when you look at just the way things were structured, and and this is comes back to the food side. When you're limiting people traveling, you know, you have migrant workers that are moving in and out. So there's some of this that is done because of weather patterns shifting, but there's also a lack of workforce. There's a lack of people available. And then when you look at the ports and there's a lack of just individuals getting these containers on and off the, uh, the boat. And the, the other issue is like when you, when you start looking out in, in terms of how the developed market drives the emerging market, well, what, are, what is an, the developed market buy? The developed market buys either finished goods or semi-finished goods. And what does that mean? It's like, well, we buy raw materials and grains and other things from emerging markets. So what happens when the developed market slows? Well, the emerging market slows. You know, the developed market leads into the emerging market. Now you have a situation where, you know, back to your point on the, on the U.S. dollar, you know, 85% of emerging market uh, receivables is priced in dollars. You know, so you look at, at the dollar uh, situation and the movement of funds. And, and this is where, we, you know, not to go too in depth on this, but when we talk about emerging markets, we always look at fund flows and what's happening with money in general. So if you look at the, the movement of currency and the movement of trade, as trade falls, that means that they're taking in less dollars naturally. So that means that they have to take their reserves and they have to go out and get those dollars because they're not getting them naturally in order to meet bond payments and interest payments and, and, uh, trying to, to just essentially maintain their, their economy because most things are, are, are bought and paid for in dollars. So what does that do? That dwindles the foreign exchange or the foreign reserve. So the foreign reserve goes down and now all of a sudden you're in, in, inflation fears start to pick up because you're like, all right, well, you don't have enough money to back what you're doing. 
So that means you can't stimulate the economy the same way. That means that you can't support your people the same way. And then all of a sudden, then you have, well, um, America is shutting down. You know, they probably know what we're doing. So we're going to have to shut down to spread, to, to minimize spread. And then it just compounds on itself. And we can issue, I mean, clearly we are issuing debt blindly. Kenya can't do that. You know, you, you know, even, even India, let's take a bigger economy. India had a real inflation fear. Now that is, that has normalized a bit, but rates are starting to go back up. There's starting to pick up a bit more inflation fears because the, the Modi's government budget was much bigger than, than expected. So now there's inflation fears again. And this is where you continue to see this component and why the dollar becomes so entrenched because you need those U.S. dollars to, to, to manage your FX reserves, to manage your inflation, but at the same time, to just participate in global trade. Okay, so let's bring China back in now. We kind of get, get separate them. So you, you said a minute ago China has the money to go and buy up stuff, and, and that is true. They do have that. Um, but also, I think we're sitting at a point to where, depending on how bad the food problem gets, um, and you talk about reshaping of the map, that you could see China left out in the dark. Some of these countries going, you know what, <laughs> China, we didn't not not the leadership, but the people on the ground going, you know what, China, we we didn't like these deals, we didn't like how you're doing us. You built all these bad projects, you, you brought in your own people, you know, you you screwed us one too many times. Uh, leadership, if you keep selling to China, we're going to have a fisticuffs type problem, and China gets pushed back in in, in ways that that hurts itself. Do you, do you think that there will be enough? Um, there already is some verbal sentiments from some of these emerging markets, like they're tired of China. Do you think that China will find itself in a, in a pickle because com- countries use this to get out of the China business? Uh, absolutely. And, and we are, we're, we're, one of the things that I'm going to write for Friday is actually going to be China friend or foe, because I think it's a very big conversation. And as we've been, as we were talking, a uh, headline just came across saying Ethiopian Euro bond yield surge as Fitch sees default risk. Just talking about you know some of the issues that are actually coming out and this wasn't planned this actually just came out but when we when we look at china so let's cycle back to the food equation so when we look at and i can i can send you links that we did on on several videos talking about this with pretty pictures you know so when we look at africa first so africa uh, has actually denied several Chinese fishing permits because they're like, look, you're, you're overfishing. You're not adhering to all the restrictions and you're, you're damaging our ecosystem, which is going to impact us. So this is the first time that we've actually seen a real pushback. And this wasn't just like one or two licenses. This was actually 47 licenses were denied in across a large swath of, uh, of African nations. I think it was three or four along the, the, the Western, um, the Western coast now cycle that back into the nine dash line in the South China Sea. So the nine dash line, which is what China uses to say why they own a large portion of, uh, of the South China Sea, which was resoundingly denied and, and mitigated at the UN. They said, you're crazy. This is not true. Nobody, nobody recognizes this. This was pushed by the Philippines in terms of, look, you can't take our islands. And that, that spreads through into v, uh, Vietnamese, Malaysian and Indonesian territories as well. Now, what did that result in? So right now that uh, China has, uh, I think it's, they're up to four Vietnamese shipping boats have been sunk. Uh, just based on aggressive actions because the food situation is getting worse 
because what does the nine dash line encompass? It encompasses not only oil and gas assets and, and, and islands that can be, you know, hardened to militarize to push the U.S. Navy off, offshore. It's fishing. There's a huge amount of, of natural fishing grounds that is encompassed within this nine dash line which is why Vietnam and China continue to be at odds because that is where the, the lines get, get, uh, get skewed in terms of what is the EEZ or the, you know, the zones that is, that is claimed and recognized by the UN and other international entities as their, their area. And then what is the nine dash line claim? So you're already seeing that strife, not only in China, in, uh, in Africa, but you're seeing it more and more so in Southeast Asia as, as we look at just fishing in general. Okay. So the other thing is I want to talk to you about Taiwan for just a second. We had on, um, Scott Horton last week talking about, um, kind of putting it into the wars and someone sent me a note about Taiwan and, you know, what the, what, you know, what they thought the U.S. should do. And, I've got mixed emotions about the U.S. and its positioning with Taiwan. Um, I think I'm curious your thoughts, regardless of whether you think the U.S. should or shouldn't defend Taiwan. Um, do you agree with the sentiment that if China takes Taiwan, there are no handrails? Like we're, 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 they are going to do what they, if, if they take Taiwan, then whatever else they want to do, more or less, they're going to try to do. Yes. Yeah, so the the argument, and, and I and I try to bring this back to the 30s and 40s. Hong Kong is our is our Rhine, where when Germany went in and, and took the Rhineland back, we said, well, you know, they're 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 German by heritage, you know, they got that in World War One. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll let that go. But then when we moved in, when they moved into Poland, that was the red line. You know, that was when we saw an aggressive move that had to be addressed. Now, fast forward to today, what did we let Hong Kong? Hong Kong was we, we spoke strongly, there was tight rhetoric, but we didn't really do much or say much against that outside of, you know, wagging our finger, where Taiwan is a very different situation. So Taiwan is where during, for those that don't know, during the, the Mao push uh, in 54, most people that were fighting for democracy versus the communist regime were pushed into Taiwan. So Taiwan is like that last democratic stronghold as everybody was pushed south. So now fast forward to today, we have a large amount of our semiconductor, our fabrication of semiconductors and our intelligence on IP is, is in Taiwan. So we have a real military, economic and just supply chain reason to want to protect Taiwan. So the way that it normally works is you have what's called a trip force. And a trip force is something where you have a small contingent of American military. In case something happens, we have a reason to react. So the way this has always been structured is Taiwan is meant to be able to defend itself for two weeks because that is the amount of time it would take to mobilize the U.S. from Japan, Philippines, Guam, South Korea to make, to essentially make a counterattack. Uh, to essentially de def def uh, you know, deflect any type of movement against Taiwan. So we have a means because they're the democratic component to the Chinese you know, people in general. But at the same time, we also have a real supply chain, economic and intellectual property reason to be there, especially when we look at semiconductors and the shortages that exist throughout the world today, 
we need to protect that supply chain for our own, you know, let's just say economic reasons. Okay. You mentioned the semiconductors. Um, I just saw Ford said their F-150 launch is going well, except for minus the chips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's a big problem. <laughs> you know, yeah. t- tell me, are we going to be seeing new iPhone models released, delayed, Samsung, whatever computers, like how far, I don't know where all these are used at. I'm not a semiconductor expert, but you're, you're an expert on everything. Just, so, literally, <laughs> I pretend fake, fake it till you make it. <laughs> so, so the, well, you, you, you mentioned, uh, cars. So, uh, Toyota, well, Volkswagen was first. Volkswagen had to pull back on their production. Toyota was second. And if you think about Volkswagen and Toyota the, are the two largest car manufacturers in the world, they had to slow down, uh, production because they ran out of semiconductors or I shouldn't say run out. They were, they were very short in terms of their supply. And that is now rolled down into Ford. And now GM is saying something very similar. So what are the issues in general? One, back to COVID and just getting the raw materials, getting people back into the, into their, their working, uh, you know, structure, going into the, into the water and seeing the delays at the ports. But at the same time, we also had a very interesting dynamic with China US. So there was concern based on what President Trump was saying with tariffs. And so far, Biden hasn't said anything about adjusting a lot of this about Huawei. So what did Huawei do? Huawei went out and bought a huge amount of semiconductors before sanctions get, get, could get put on in order to build this, uh, the, uh, you know, build up their inventory to make sure that their supply chains would be okay for, I, I, the goal was 18 months. So you've created now a huge shortfall. Now we also had a big shortage in inventories. So that that's everything, like you said, computers, phones, TVs, you know, essentially everything has a semiconductor in it today because everything is a smart TV or a smartphone. And so you need a, suit, a certain amount of computing capacity. And because the chips are getting you know, more, more powerful. They're, they're smarter. They, they have more stuff that they can do. I mean, our phones are, are, what is it? A hundred times better than the, than the, the computers that landed a, a mission to on the moon. I mean, you're talking about a serious amount of computing capa- uh, power, but it takes time. It takes money. It takes raw materials and all of those things just got stretched. So it's going to take some time to see that catch up, which means prices will go. Yeah. Uh- Up, 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 which is why it's funny because everyone always talks about how, you know, tech is going to save us. Tech has kept things cheaper, which has been true. But this is the first phone cycle where once you back out advancements, this is the first time that we've actually seen prices go up and not down for the price of phones. Any read on how long the semiconductor shortage might last? You know, it's going to come down to, to demand. And if you just look at, you know, the demand for uh, just the backlog when we're looking at tech, you know, components, I, I think this is going to be something that's going to take uh, more, I would say two to three quarters before we get to some semblance of normalcy. And the thing about demand is I'm holding up an iPhone. I don't know if it's, uh, I got the three little, I don't know if you can tell which one that is, the three little deals, 10 maybe. I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah. So the thing about the iPhones are, the thing about the iPhones is, um, most people get a new one because they want a new one. Mm-hmm. They don't need a new one. Um, because, you know, the difference between the iPhone 8 and the iPhone, whatever this is, I don't know, I think it's a year, two years old, I don't know. Um, this phone will last me three to four years doing 
what I use it for, which is email and WhatsApp and Twitter and, you know, right. Facebook or Instagram, whatever I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not running the complex, the computing power that's on here. Check them out. I'm looking at it now. I got Weeble. I got some TD Ameritrade, you know, I got a game I play, a bank, you know, I mean, okay. That's the simple program. So like the real, it's, I'm not using it for the real horsepower that it has. Um, you know, so I could, I could be fine with this phone for two or three more years. So as prices go high and you can't afford food, you know, uh, as much, um, your cars get more expensive, your computers get more expensive. The demand couldn't drop off though, because folks are saying that they can't buy a new iPhone. So does that mean that we'll, we'll see a, a reset, a re retracement to use the proper term, I think of the tech stocks over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I, I'm going to say yes. Like, I, I think when you look at just the consumer purchasing is going to change, consumer behavior is going to adjust. And, and that's what I think we're going to start to see more and more as we go forward, because on like on our shows and in the, in the articles I've written for, for the war room in general, like we've talked about that we, we've gotten ahead of ourselves and now this bifurcation in the market you know, that we talked about on country by country, it's also class by class. Like, you know, you, when we look at the top 10, 20% of the U S population, things have gotten better, but the bottom 80%, they've gotten worse. And, and that's when, like you said, if, if I'm someone who just, just got a new job because I've been out of work for 20 weeks and I'm now hired back at, you know, let's just say a third less of the salary that I left my initial job for. Well, am I going to rush out to buy the newest iPhone or am I going to now have my phone that I changed every year? I'm going to change it every two years or every three years. I mean, I'm still running the Samsung Galaxy S6. So I am way behind on movements but and i use my phone for everything it, it's just how do you treat your equipment you know what do you do with it but regardless i, I also think samsung and i should say the google universe is better than apple that i'm out there oh, saying oh, it now oh, so there it is oh, there it is oh, i'm out there with it oh, i'm out there with it i'm just i'm dropping i'm dropping that in there <laughs> so why well, and then at the same time you're going to start to see replacement cycles lower so you know am, am i going to am i going to pay up for a samsung and and or a iPhone or am I going to get an LG or a Google phone or something that is maybe a little bit lower cost where an iPhone is going to cost me 1200, you know, the Samsung 5Gs are going to cost me 1300 or am I going to go get something for 550 and then I spread it across, you know, two years on my payment plan. I think you're also going to see that replacement cycle. So when I talk inflation, that's where some of the pushback is against my inflation views, where when I go from an iPhone to an LG, that's going to inherently reduce my cost. And that replacement value is going to be in my benefit because that'll be net deflationary. But to your point on stock prices, that should slow down or at least take some of the air out of the bubble that has been created within the uh, the tech sector. Yeah, I think the other thing is, you know, uh, as you say, you got the iPhone six. I don't remember why I got the the one that I did, or how long I had the one before it. Um, I got an old one later somewhere that I used to use, but um, I did. I think I had that same phone at one point. It was a good phone. It's not hot. Yeah, well, it, it's the Samsung. I, I'm I'm a fan of Samsung. Of Samsung. I, I've been in the Google universe since since I first started with Gmail back when I was in college. You love communism. What can I say? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but, you know, I think. To your point, uh, which is right. People might say, listen, iPhone's great, but 
I have an iPhone. I got a PC. So switching to Samsung or Google phone or an LG phone or whatever, it's not that big of a deal. It would probably work my stuff better. And so you might see, you know, some pressure on Apple from different spots or people hang on to their Apple phones longer, mm-hmm. Apple watches. Um, most like the Apple watch, my wife has an Apple watch. She's not listening. Um, <laughs> and you know, she really doesn't need an Apple watch. And that's part of the thing as well. We like the, these phones. They're great. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm fine if you buy one, but I think when you're talking about, Prices inflating, things changing, your money get tighter. You look around and say, what do I need versus what do I have to have? Right. And, and, you know, the old Razor flip phone that can text, I, I'm, I'm being serious. Most people could operate off of that. You know, do we need email? So if things get really bad, I think you'll see people go, okay, well, most of these things are not necessities. They're just luxuries. Right. Well, and that's what we're seeing with, you know, when, when you think, like I always joke that when you look at the Apple offerings, they're the same product with different size screens. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at the iPhone, like the iWatch, it has some functionality, but let's be fair. You're just too lazy to take your iPhone out of your pocket or, or your pocketbook right. and whatnot. And, you know, my mother has one, but that's because she's a, she's a nurse and, and it's, you know, there's nowhere for her to keep her phone on her. So she keeps it in her locker and then she can communicate with it by her watch. So there is a functional need for some people. It's just, but you know, do you really need it? Is it something where, you know, do I need the iPad? Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't, they, they, they they don't. Yeah. So I agree. Um, Okay. So let's, let's, um, so we've talked about foods going to hell in a handbasket. We talked about semiconductor industry to ruin. Uh, let's <laughs> some optimism and talk about oil and gas. <laughs> well, it might be hard to find optimism in in the oil and gas space, but the the one the one benefit that we have right now is is obviously where crude prices are. So right now, as we've been talking, WTI has crossed above fifty eight. You know, now we're in a situation where you can hedge pretty effectively through, let's just say January, uh, you know, let's, let's just say December of 2022. So not that you would, but when we look at it, the backwardation, so backwardation just means that you're going to try to sell your crude at the front month because you're getting a better price now than in the next six months. So you're going to try to front load your, uh, your, your volume. So when you're looking at the U.S., you know, what is the U.S. going to try to do? And, and when we're talking U.S. C&Ps, they're going to hedge. They're going to use completion, which we cover every week on Friday in our primary vision frack spread count show. And then you're going to drill because they're going to try to front load completion. So we think that completion activity is going to run ahead of rig activity because they're going to go after those drilled but uncompleted wells. You know, get to market as fast as possible, try to maximize some of this output and capture this better pricing. But, and this is why Russia was very much against Saudi Arabia taking that voluntary 1 million barrels a day off, off the market, which started at, uh, you know, Feb one, it was because they saw this happening. They're like, you can't give these guys the ability to go out there and hedge, to go out there and create a structure and to maintain production at these levels, which, you know, let's say we're producing about 10.9 million barrels a day right now. We, you know, if we get to over 200 frac spread counts, you know, we could probably start to see a little bit of growth, but we're really not going anywhere past about 11.3 million just because there's just not enough capacity for growth and it becomes harder and harder to maintain that elevation. But at this price deck, we have a lot of opportunity. One, you have oil pricing 
you know, in, in your favor with the ability to hedge. You have the NGL or natural gas liquid ba- uh, basket trading over $20 because propane is strong. Ethane is strong. You have a lot of opportunities on the liquid side. You know, naphtha, which is used in, in the petrochemical side, uh, prices are getting better in Asia, which is good for the U.S. You know, we're, we're in a situation where these higher prices are going to allow these guys to, to position themselves appropriately on the balance sheet, try to bring in a little bit of the cash. Hopefully they don't burn money like they have in the past and they've learned some lessons. And you could see a very sustainable rally in terms of just how they're, they've positioned their, their balance sheets over the next few months. Okay. So with that being said, we have the Saudis who will have to decide in less than 30 days, roughly, what they're going to do for April and May. Um, they took a million barrels off the market, as you said. So you're going to have the Saudis, and then you're going to have the rest of OPEC going, listen, the prices are high. We lost a lot of money last year. We, you know, Saudis, you took a million off. <laughs> we want to increase, too, or we want right. to put barrels on the market. How do you think that shapes out? Because you could see the price come right back down here in, you know, 30, 45 days, more or less, if, uh, if, if and I'm not saying OPEC's going to flood the market, but um, it, there's a path to see this recorrect pretty quickly, right? Yeah, because the problem is now everything that I just described is the paper market and the paper market is, is just completely disconnected right now from the physical market. Now, the physical market is telling a very different story when we look at demand. Where, you know, typically we like, we look at West Africa first because they're the first to load, uh, to post their loading schedules, which is just exports. And they have some of the better quality crude in the world because they're medium sweet, which just means that pretty much any refiner can take that cargo and make a, a solid suite of products utilizing that medium sweet cut. So this is where, you know, crude quality matters more and more. But when we look at pricing, Angola has been struggling to sell cargoes. They had prices, they, they've cut prices on the spot side several different times before they finally got a buyer. West, uh, Nigeria has been struggling to, to place their cargoes. So all of a sudden you have West Africa that, that is showing some cracks in the, in demand. And a lot of that, specifically Angola, flows into Asia, more specifically China. So that means that we're watching Chinese slow down in general. So now flip to the North Sea. And into Europe, where the North Sea cargoes started to, to price at a fairly tight differential in the, in the physical market. But all of it, that was Shell playing a game in terms of paper versus physical. Now that the bids are gone, there's nothing but sellers out there. And we're seeing differentials really start to widen out and discounts coming through as sellers are overwhelming buyers. And we're seeing that play out again with Urals, which is coming out of Russia, where they're, they're having to price their, their crude at a steeper and steeper discount to compete against West Africa and to compete against the North Sea. And you're seeing this, 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 di- this dynamic shaping where the physical market just isn't there. And when we look at China, cause everybody was buying crude in November because China was going to buy at the same pace forever. Well, they they imported 9.6 million barrels a day in December, which was well below expectations. They imported a little over 12 million in January, which was below expectations. Now you have a, an armada sending, you know, floating its way into China because that's everything they bought in November that is now on the water that's now going to China. So that means that's going to be run in April, you know, in April, May. So are they really going to need to buy? Are they really going to have to come back in and support the physical market? And so the paper market is saying all day, 
And the physical market is saying, hey, guys, let's slow down. Refiners are still running well below average. Asian buying is slowing. India posted uh, the, the slowest demand for diesel since, since September, you know, down 2% year over year with, with uh, technically January being an easy comp month versus last year. And they're just not seeing the demand where India is getting better, but not back to normal. And China is getting worse as we head into Lunar New Year. So that's where we, we see this competition and, and there's just the physical market does not really jive with where the uh, paper market sits. Okay. So let's talk real quick about the Lunar New Year stuff because the prices that I've seen are, you know, hotels, airlines are down 50 to 80%. They've slashed prices. Um, the government talking to people, I have talked to people on the ground there, talking to friends who have people on the ground there. They said they're kind of mixed messages from the government on where well, you could go, but we prefer you not to. Uh, right. Talk about this delivery that's coming. Um, part of that is tied to how much, you know, travel, how much demand is created from Lunar New Year. And it looks like that's really going to be a drop in the bucket to what it normally is. Yeah. So right now the estimates are for just based on what's been sold. So uh, 2019 to 2020 was down 50%. And the expectation is that is for 2021 to be 30 to 40% below 2019 uh, 10% above 2020. So there's a little bit of a benefit, but to your point on this, this mixed messaging, essentially the message is don't go. Mm. And if you have to go, you're going to have to pay for it. And what does that mean? So they've, they've essentially laid out that if you, if you want to travel, you need a nucleic test that you pay for. It has to be struck and, and it has to have been taken within the last 24 or 48 hours, depending on the province you're traveling from which, I mean, just think about timing. Anybody who's gotten a nucleic test, good luck getting it before two days. So essentially just based on the timing and then the fact that it's going to cost you out of pocket to do it because the, the the government and the provincial government, the federal government won't back you for it, means that it's going to cost you extra to go and do something. So essentially people are sitting there saying it's it's worth it not to go. Then on the return side, you need the same thing. So you're paying on the front end extra, then you're paying on the back end just to get home. And it's really a means of keeping people in place. So what does that mean for activity? Well, we've seen teapot refiners, which are the independents or Shandong refiners, they've started to slow. We've seen some stability in the state-owned enterprises, but you you have a products problem where you're just not going to use the products that you've built up because there's less flights, there's less travel, there's less everything that's gasoline, diesel, and uh, jet fuel, which just means you're just going to run less crude because you're going to have to work off that product inventory or export it. And the export market isn't exactly great right now. So you're just going to slow your refinery run rates, work through some of that pro- uh, that that um, that elevated product, and then you'll start to take some of that crude off the water. So we're expecting to see some of those uh, offshore cargoes get stuck on the coast. That'd be, that'd be fun. So <laughs> prices are up. They, they could go back down depending on how you view that. Of course, the one thing to consider is here is that if you continue to see large draws in inventory, it doesn't, you know, then, then the pro, then the physical market will start to match what you're saying the paper market is, right? And so, yeah. Um, it, so we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. In the coming months, um, but let's talk about you know U.S. consumers now. So if the if the oil price is going up, then you know gasoline prices eventually will go up. You talk about propane stuff like that; those are what the consumer ultimately ends up paying for. Um, so how high do you think gasoline prices might go? Why might they get there? And then how long can they stay there? Because if you're saying 
well, crap, I can't afford my groceries hardly. Um, I can't, you know, the, the new truck's costing too much or the new phone's costing too much. So if I have to, I have to go buy one because I need one. Um, everything I buy is more expensive. Oh, by the way, gasoline is now whatever price you're saying it is. There will be breaking points and, you know, people will try to work from home or whatever. So right. how, how might gas go? How long can it stay there? And um, how do you think that plays out? So when, when you when you look at gas prices, you have to think of the last incremental barrel. So the U.S. gasoline is priced off of Brent. So typically, you're pricing it off of the last incremental piece coming in. And if you look at Brent, it's currently at sixty eighty five. So you're the a refiner is just going to try to make a margin, and they're going to try to push through those increase in prices. So we've already seen prices going higher. Uh, you know, in, in just across the U.S. And, and it's and it's not because demand is surging. It's gotten better. Don't get me wrong. We're not at the lows that we've been at. You know, as we've been saying on, on our EIA show, we expect uh, gasoline demand to come up to about 8.1 million barrels a day uh, through the remainder of the uh, uh, really from the end of winter into this into the early spring. So it's not because you're getting a surge in demand. It's just the prices for crude or your feedstock is going up. So you're going to pass that through because you're just going to pass through as much as you can and try to make some margin on the back end. So you have an issue because, well, prices are going up. So gasoline prices are going to go up. That's going to keep us at this, let's call it 245, you know, depending on where you live and, and using just 87 or regular up to about 260, 265. And that's going to essentially stay at this point as long as Brent stays here. Now, that is another reason why when you think about what OPEC did, you're like, yes, you need to make more money, but you also need to try to help your refiners and you want to help people consume more by keeping prices a little bit lower because it is a benefit for the economy. People will be more active in doing so. But now you have a situation where you could see this stay for the next three, four months, uh, you know, especially given where, where, you know, the supply chain of going from the crude market to the refiner, from the refiner to storage, from storage to the rack, which is where they load for gasoline. And then it finally ends up at your pump. You know, that is also complicated by ethanol. So, you know, most blends have 10% ethanol. Well, corn prices are 570. You know, the last time we we had a boom in in gasoline demand, corn prices were $3. So you're also looking at an ethanol crush that is going to cost you more in general. Now, the other side is what does a refiner make? So refiners start to make and have started to make what's called summer blend gasoline. So as it gets hotter out, you have to change the the way you make gasoline which essentially takes benzene out of the uh, out out of the stream, so it's actually more expensive to make gasoline because there's less gas there's there's the same gasoline but there's different additives, and those additives just cost more to make. So gasoline in the summer inherently costs more, and they've already because they're so low demand they're already trying to make summer grade to try to catch some of that margin on the back end on the hopes of an increase in activity. So we could also get an oversupply of gasoline, which which would kind of keep prices where they are just because it costs more, but there's less demand. So it kind of keeps things capped as we go through the summer months. So you don't think we're getting to 350, 4, 450, $5 gasoline then? 
if we have a, if everybody starts going out and saying, you know, lockdowns be damned, you know, COVID be damned, let's, let's get back to life and normal, uh, normalcy, you could see that push over $3. But I, I just, I struggle with how that plays out on, on there, there'll be pockets of people that say that, but I think on the average, you'll have a certain amount of caution. And then that leads into people with reduced salaries, people still unemployed, people still looking to save that is going to just mitigate some of that travel activity that happens in the summer months. Okay. Well, we, I think we've covered four, three of the four horsemen. I got one more horseman to to send in here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lumber prices are out the roof or they were, I haven't looked at them in the past couple of weeks. I don't know where they're at now. Um, You read the headlines, people saying, um, people are moving out of like New York City. They're moving to Texas or Florida. They're going to want to live in houses potentially. So the housing prices are kind of all out of whack. And then you read reports. Well, you know, you know, the Rosano family is building a hundred homes here. They're building a hundred homes there. <laughs> well, if they're building homes and the lumber prices are higher, that means the home price ultimately will be higher, which means that it costs more. So like it, everywhere we turn, it seems like we're getting hit with higher prices. We're not, we're not going to be in a 2008 from the same standpoint of what happened in 2008, but will we see kind of a, a resetting of the housing market where people go, well, crap, we built a bunch of new homes and no one can afford it now. Right. And, and that's what's starting to happen. Like I just pulled up. So the active lumber contract right now is $928 and we're essentially back to uh, the highs that we saw in September. And it, it's, it's, it's a great point because you're taught, you're, you're seeing the cost of framing lumber. And and it's very clear because some people will reach out to me and say, I went to Home Depot and buy wood, no problem. It's like, no, 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 no. Like they're very specific types of lumber. You know, when you talk about lumber contracts, you're talking about uh, framing lumber. So lumber that's used in home building. And we're seeing that where the prices have essentially doubled. So we've, if you assume that you need, let's say $30,000 worth of, or $35,000 worth of lumber to frame a normal home of, $400,000, which if you look at the average home price in the world, in the country right now is about 384. So now you've gone from, you know, 30 to $35,000 worth of lumber to 75, $80,000 worth of lumber. Now that has to get passed on somehow. So you've increased prices because why not? You know, rates are free. So it's been passed through. But as we start to see some of these rates cool, you know, start to rise, well, that means that you're going to have a bigger issue with, with the actual price. But now let's look at this a little differently. Well, who's your incremental buyer? So like you said, everybody moved out that could. So when you look at who was buying homes, they were people with a credit score of over 760. They were fairly wealthy individuals within um, the urban setting. They had a little bit of a nest egg that they could go out and make the down payment and have the credit score to get a very low rate. So you had that first mover. Well, who's your next incremental buyer? And that's where we start to struggle with. Is there another wave of people that have the same credit score, the same ability to make down payments that we saw previously? Now, there's also the component where you've, you've talked about new homes being built. But what about the homes that could be in short sale, but aren't because of the moratorium on uh, foreclosures and bankruptcies? Well, now what happens when that expires? Like how much new supply comes on top of, you know, new home construction, the new permits, and who is your next incremental buyer? So right now you have a big shortfall of supply. You still have elevated demand, but then as you whittle through your demand and your supply starts to go up, 
at, like you said, a, a much higher price, well, who's your next incremental buyer? And does that force some of these guys to reduce costs, uh, reduce price, take some, like eat into some of their margin and even maybe start to sell some of these at loss, at losses. Okay. Mark, the fifth horseman was on. I'll let you go to this question. Um, people kind of measure the economy a lot of ways, uh, whether it's the stock market, you know, is it up or down, but let's just use unemployment. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's something everyone kind of has a somewhat a grasp on what it means. Right. The Dow means is kind of a different story altogether, but so <laughs> the next 12 to 24 months, um, where does unemployment at? Is it going up? Is it staying where it's at? Is it going down? I know it's going to move up and down, but generally speaking, the moving average, where is it at the next 12, 24 months? Because that will give some of these listeners who might not, you know, track the lumber price or whatever, kind of a general uh, synopsis of where you think our country's economy is going to be the next two, one to two years. Right. So it's a great, it's a great question. It's one that we look at closely because typically people will say, and, and it has held true in the past, in, uh, unemployment and employment is a lagging indicator. So typically you get the front side moving, you get manufacturing picking up, production picking up. And then as you get feel better about your business, you have more revenue coming in, new orders that are going to support your revenue uh, estimates. You go out and hire people. Now, one of the things that we said coming from 2019 into 2020 was that there was zombie companies. There were people that had too much, too many employees. And it's very hard in general to let someone go because you have to build an HR case against them. So what did COVID provide but cover? COVID was up, sorry, COVID, and then you got let go. So one of the estimates was just taking an example. So we assumed that a, uh, so a, if a company had a thousand employees, they were going to let go a hundred quickly. A hundred were going to get let go, and that was going to be the hundred. And then we assume that that was just at the at the as everyone everything was dying in April into May. But we thought that June twenty people were going to come back pretty quickly because you know you, you you cut to the bone, you try to save costs, things are getting a little bit better. So twenty people come back. Now we thought that there was going to be about 30 individuals, uh, you know, coming back off of that 20 over the course of six to eight months. And we're there. Now, if you look at the jobs number, if you look at the, uh, the, that November, December, January, we've essentially flatlined on employment data. And that's because we think now people have gotten to the point of comfort after t- tying in uh, you know, it, you know, tech, uh, capacity, you know, investing in automation, you know, trying to, to make things more efficient. So right now we think that you're going to see this essentially flatline and maintain below where we are, uh, pre COVID level. So right now we're about 54% below where we were pre COVID. We think that gap closes a little bit into the end of the year and you'll probably be about 40% below pre COVID. But there's going to be a lot of headwinds because not only are these are there, you have 19 million people competing for less jobs, but that's a wage problem. So you're, you're already seeing wage compression where people want to get back to work and they're starting to panic. So they're just accepting a lower wage. So again, that's going to eat into, into discretionary income. That's going to eat into the way that they're looking at things. So the company might be more profitable on a revenue side, but they're just not, we're not seeing that filter down to the employee in general. And then that's where we think that this employment problem is going to remain, even though some of the leading indicators have shown that the economy is picking up and we have seen additional activity on the manufacturing service front 
It's just, it's not going to result in this new surge in, in employment. Oh, by the way, $15 an hour minimum wage is coming, which we don't have time to get into today, but uh, <laughs> I'm working on a little piece about that. And, and I, I just, uh, it's, it's saying to me, no one, I don't know anyone who doesn't want people to make more money, but um, when you say $15 minimum wage, it's $7.25 now. So everyone between $14.99 and $7.25 has to get a raise, right? Right. And then you say, well, what about the guy making 17 Cause he was making $10 an hour more than minimum wage. Do you keep that at $10 an hour plus, you know, MW plus 10? So he's at 25 now, or, you know, and so at some point you can't do that, but those are the conversations and questions. It does, it's not as clean as moving it from 725. I mean, yeah, 725 to 15. It causes all these other problems in the workforce when you actually have to deal with the people and their livelihoods. And, and so, um, go, go ahead. Well, you know, it's, it's a great point. And a lot of union contracts are struck on, uh, they, they have to be a certain percentage above minimum wage. So if you take minimum wage up, some union contracts will actually get way more expensive. And when you think about if somebody has, let's say, uh, say you have, okay, three employees at $8. Mm-hmm. Now you have to pay $15. Well, does three go to two and a half or two? They do just start to increase our hours work per employee and reduce employees because you can only push through price increases so much. So how much can that burger really cost? Can I increase the price of the burger 50 cents and then shave, you know, you know, shave one employee or half of an employee to try to make up the difference. And that's where you're again, price inflation, as well as mitigating by trying to minimize cost by letting these people go, which is again, why we just don't think you're going to see this huge surge in employment within the U S and then globally in general, this is a global thing, but in the U S specifically. Okay. Well, Mark, I look forward to um, flamethrower Friday coming out this week. You have a new name. You are now the fifth horseman listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back. Uh, I think we got it. Yeah, we've got one. So I have an interview coming out um, I'm supposed to do Thursday night, and so I would normally run it on Friday, but since Rosano's flamethrower is coming out, <laughs> I might either try to get that late Thursday night or Saturday morning to, to let everyone breathe on on the flamethrower Friday piece. But, Mark, thanks, thanks as always. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the time.